0: Why is Jesus, the isn't the Bible full of contradictions? What about those who've never heard of plan? Don't know basically Why is the, the Bible? Same? Are there, answers to, Are there answers, answers to these questions? questions?
1: Well, uh, I would remind everybody that that's tonight at 6 o'clock. If you'd like to hang out with Tony and learn a little bit more about how maybe a spare bedroom in your house could be used for a night or two by a family or a child uh, that's in crisis. And the family can then say, okay, you guys take care of the baby. Let me figure out my life. And If if you're interested in that, uh, join us tonight at 6 o'clock. Additionally, I'm wearing my Kenya bracelet today because we have 17 people still overseas. Keep them in your prayers. They should be beginning their journey home now. They're due back in Chicago by about 2 o'clock tomorrow. And I'm sure we'll hear all kinds of stories next weekend. We look forward to that, all right? Take your Bible, please, today and turn to Acts chapter 2. It's about this far through the Bible. It's a long way through there. If you're unfamiliar with scripture, there's one in the pew rack right in front of you, and uh, you can see the page number behind me. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, take that home as our gift to you by all means, all right? So we're going to read black writing on white pages, and I imagine most of us in the room are probably literate, maybe not everybody, but fair enough, most of us can probably read. And I'm quite aware that we take reading and writing for granted these days. We have a you know, writing is a fairly easy proposition for us, even if we're not good at it. Nonetheless, we can, you know, there's pens and paper and pencils, and we have electric, electronic tablets and computers. In our house, you can actually do something on a tablet these days in one room and push a button, and I can hear whirring in another room, and it prints out. It's really cool. I go, wow, where did that come from? That's really neat stuff. Of course, it wasn't always that way, was it? Writing used to be much more difficult and much more cumbersome not known by many people who knew how to write. Uh, For example, 6,000 years ago, long time ago before I was born, uh, some of you didn't even get that, but nonetheless, 6,000 years ago, cuneiform was the primary way that people were writing. It was clay tablets with stylus. A stylus was used. And um, the University of Pennsylvania Museum has a really cool website uh, that will enable you to go out and um, get them to write your name in cuneiform and with the lettering of what it might look like 6,000 years ago. So, for example, here's, here's my name or my initials, WDK, and you can type that in, press enter, and then you quickly come up with, that's what WDK looked like 6,000 years ago. Dave, what Dave Blessing, what's your middle name or your middle initial? Yeah. DMB? Yeah. DMB, guys. What's DMB look like? All right, there you go. D, it's like the M sideways a little bit. You can catch that, okay. Fred, what's your middle initial? A, a. F-A-C, please. Ooh, yours is way more complicated. I'm glad I don't have your name. <laughs> glad I don't have your name. Now, here's my point. Historians say, well, that's what it looked like. And you go, how do you know? They could be making it up, for all we know, right? I wouldn't know the difference. I don't know whether or not something that was written 6,000 years ago is accurate and whether or not it makes sense today. And why, mostly because I just know, you know, how that people had to write years ago was messy and awkward and far removed from our culture and approach. And how do historians know if they're telling us right? It's the same sort of questions that people have when it comes to the Bible. And people ask, how do we know? I mean, you've got it in English, but how do you know? Okay, it came from Greek and Hebrew, but how do you know it's there and if it's true? And then there, once you ask that question, which is legitimate, the question then quickly becomes, well, you know, even like in the New Testament, Jesus was born and lived his life, and then there was a lot of hundreds of years, and somebody wrote down the New Testament. How do you know that? Didn't something get messed with during those hundreds of years or... Okay, so maybe there were lots of copies made, and you know how when you're copying things, it just gets fainter and fainter and fainter, and didn't things get messed up? And for that matter, if the Bible was put together by a bunch of Christians, then did they really have enough resources to produce dozens of manuscripts? Were there manuscripts that they produced then? Were they true then? Are they true now? And Isn't it feasible that something is just all messed up along the way? You didn't think you'd hear those questions in church, but they are legitimate questions. And I'll see if I can answer them for you today, beginning in Acts chapter 2. Okay, we're going to read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is a passage of Scripture that um, relates to the days, oh, probably within a few weeks of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He's gone to heaven. It's within a few months at least, okay? And um, this is about the church, the first church of Jerusalem, literally the first church in Jerusalem. It's a large church. We know there are at least 3,500 people in this congregation because they counted them. And we are told that when we get to Acts 42, there's 3,500 people. We read this. They, this group of Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So this is what they did every day. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So they're gathering together for worship. Then apparently they're going home. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So they worship, then they go and they eat. They praise God and enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And uh, you read that and you go, man, that was an idyllic community, right? Now here's what we know about this idyllic community. We know they are new converts to Christianity. Christianity is not a religion yet at this point. As a matter of fact, they weren't even called Christians yet. They were called Jesus' disciples. Sometimes they were called followers of the way. And they had a fairly unique approach to life together. It seems that they worshipped together on a regular basis. They were fairly generous from appearances. What we read here is, okay, so they had property and they would sell it. And then they would give the resources away, the money. They prayed. They studied. Apparently, they partied a lot. Seriously, they went to their houses, each other to each other's homes, and ate in the houses and had a good time. And then the community looked on and admired them. And it says the community was aware of their sense of love and care and the group's growing spirituality and you want to go, who are we kidding? It just sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like that to you? I mean, isn't this, isn't this some revisionist history being written here? You know what revisionist history is, right? After the events, people write something up as how it went down to make it sound really good. You've been to funerals where revisionist history takes place, probably. <laughs> you laugh, but you've been there. John Doe dies, and you met John Doe many times, and you would not go to his funeral under your own choices, but you went because you wanted to care for the family. And John Doe was a louse, but then the eulogies start, and you go, that's not the guy I know. (laughs) And you go, man, listen to the eulogies. He's going to be standing in front of St. Peter. He's going to be there handing out all the rewards at heaven's gate based on the eulogies. And you go, Somebody is doing revisionist history during this funeral. Isn't that what's taking place here in Acts 2? was Wasn't? I mean, surely there are embellishments here. and Aren't there other places for that matter where Scripture is exaggerating, misinformed, unreliable, perhaps downright wrong at best or at worst actually lying? Are those questions that you have? If so, then I'm really glad you're here today. What we are doing right now is we are in the middle of a sermon series called Room for Doubt. 24 churches around the community are doing the same series and we are we are striving to bring to you questions that people have about Christian faith. And what we have been doing is we are bringing to you a series of arguments and propositions regarding our understanding of God. We're gonna take a look at Jesus Christ next week. Today it's looking at scripture. Why would we say that scripture is holy? And if you will, the overall, overall walk work, pardon me, and responsibility of Christians around the world within our own community and specifically for us here at First Christian Church? What's our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ here at First Christian? And so we've been working on that for a number of weeks now and we have a big event next week, as a matter of fact, when all 24 churches are going to come together. Did you see these in your program today? You didn't end up with two of them by mistake. Neither of them are for you. I would assume you already know about this, but I want you to give these away. As a matter of fact, Mark Middleburg, is gonna be our guest, send us a video request or a video invitation for all of you to join us next Sunday Sunday night at Kirkland. Watch the screens, you'll catch what he's got to say.
0: Hi, my name is Mark Middleburg, and I wanna tell you I am so excited about what your church is doing, and I understand like 24 other churches in the Decatur area are also doing, and that's this Room for Doubt series. This is so important, and I'm so thrilled to be part of it. I'm going to be coming into town on Sunday, October 4th, and that evening at 6 p.m. in the Kirkland Auditorium, I'm going to help, you know, host and be part of answering questions at what we're calling the Room for Doubt Q&A event. Now, this is a place where you and anyone you bring can come and raise whatever spiritual questions you want to raise. Uh, We're going to have open mics, no holds barred. This is going to just be a really interesting time uh, to raise questions, doubts, objections. Um, I'll be up on stage doing my best to answer questions, and I do have backup. I'm going to have Dr. Rich Knopp, who's a professor at Lincoln Christian University, a brilliant guy, uh, there with me as backup. And uh, together we're going to answer, you know, the best we can and really try to help alleviate a lot of the questions and doubts That are troubling people. Now who is this for? This is for Christians who have doubts. Uh, This is for Christians who want to answer their friend's doubts. Uh, This is for non-Christians or people that aren't sure where they're at spiritually to come and say, does this make sense at all? Is there good reason to become a Christian? This is also for young people who are getting inundated with these kinds of issues, you know, at school and from friends and on the internet and so forth. So I hope you'll mark your calendar Plan to be with us, and by the way, I know it is Sunday, I know there's football, but I checked the schedule, Uh, you know, the Chicago Bears will have already beaten the Raiders much earlier that day, so there's nothing going on, so please, plan to be there that evening, 6 p.m., October 4th, and we'll see you there.
1: That's right, friends, so I want to remind you, use these, give them out, there's 1,900 seats there, so we've got a tall order to fill those seats, we'd be glad if you would join us and make your plans accordingly. I'm going to host, on behalf of all the churches, the... Pastors have asked me to do that because of the radio show, and they think that maybe I might know what I'm doing a little bit there. Let's hope so. And uh, (laughs) y'all didn't have to laugh quite so quickly at that, but there you go. (laughs) We'll see how we do. Make your plans six o'clock next Sunday night. So what I want to do today, though, in light of all this, is just to kind of, if you will, I I want you to hear what some of the challenges that are brought to Scripture and my responses to them. And for the sake of clarity this morning, um, I want us. I want to focus particularly on the New Testament and answer these questions. Can the Bible be trusted? Isn't it full of errors, half-truths? And aren't, aren't some of the stories just fantastical, unbelievable myths? Well, I want to tell you, I've got some really good responses to that. And this is really important that we do this because it's appropriate to ask questions, as we've said in the weeks past, that God gave us an intellect. It's good stewardship of that intellect to use that. I want to tell you right off the bat, I believe in the accuracy and the authority of Scripture, and we'll see where we can go, all right? Two of the main challenges I want to bring to you today, and we'd have to leave the rest for another time, including even some of the ones regarding the Old Testament. But for today, some would say that when it comes to the New Testament, it was written long after the events took place, and thus no one can really know for sure what happened. You've heard people say that. Well, they'll say, didn't you know that Jesus was alive and okay, maybe he died and the resurrection stuff and everything. I mean, it was hundreds of years later that they wrote down what happened to Jesus and surely some legends and some misinformation crept in. And so what you can't take, you can't take it seriously. I want to tell your friends, that is a rumor that is not founded academically, historically. It's untrue. It's been refuted over and over again, and yet people continue to repeat it. Here's the real truth. The events that are found in the New Testament, particularly, and as they are written down, they are written down by either eyewitnesses or people who interviewed the eyewitnesses. And they are written down by, they're all men from what we understand, by men who claimed and would prove that they were historians. For example, there was a guy who wrote, uh, whose name was Luke. He wrote two books that we have within the New Testament. He wrote a biography of Jesus, which we have aptly named Luke, And then that was volume one. Then the second portion of his history of all was what we call the book of Acts, where we just read today. And I want you to just listen to the methodology. This is from Luke chapter one. The first few verses, he gave his methodology for how he spoke to the eyewitnesses to Jesus' story and the story of the early church. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to the end of volume two, the book of Acts, he's actually in the story. He moves from being a reporter To a participant, this is what he said in Luke chapter 1 as to how he got to there. Many people, he said, have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. In other words, there were eyewitnesses who told us this. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, this guy was a medical doctor by profession, a very precise guy. I have also decided to write a careful account so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. He's saying, I was very careful to write down what the eyewitnesses said and what they saw. The kind of person you want to believe when he says, This is how scripture is put together. And it's very important that you hear that in addition to these being written if you will, as what the eye witnesses said, they were also written down very soon after the events they were talking about came into play. New Testament scholar scholar Craig Blomberg puts it this way. The book of Acts, which was written by Luke, ends apparently unfinished. See, you got the story of Jesus, volume one, the book of Luke. Volume two is the book of Acts, and very quickly, the main character in that book is a guy by the name of the apostle Paul. And he writes, Paul is the central figure of the book, and he's under house arrest in Rome, but then the book abrupt, abruptly ends. What happens to Paul? We don't find out from Acts, probably because the book was written before Paul was put to death. In other words, he goes from being an, talking to eyewitnesses, Luke, as he's writing... And then he starts talking about Paul. He begins to travel with Paul. Paul ends up in prison, in house arrest in Rome. The book ends, and and Luke is writing, and it's like, that's the end of it. And we go, the fact that Paul doesn't die in the book would indicate that he's writing as Paul is alive. That means Acts cannot date any later than A.D. 62, some 30 years or so after Jesus died. Having established that, we can move backwards from there. So if Acts 2, if volume 2 finished somewhere in the early 60s, you're tracking with me here? You've got to go backwards now. If you go back before, before volume 2 was written, volume 1 was written, the story of Jesus, probably a year or two beforehand. So now you're in the late 50s. And what's fascinating about that is, okay, sir, so now we have a gospel, a biography of Jesus being written in the late 50s. And if you look at the book of Luke... And you compare it to the other Gospels, he's obviously, as he's writing and as he's interviewing people, he also has in his hands the book of Mark. Because the language is very similar and it's almost at points where there's it's word for word copied. And it's like, okay, so he's got, he wrote Acts in early 60s, a few years before that. Luke is written. And as he's writing, he's already reading another book that is already in play. Do you hear what I'm saying then? That all of this occurred then, if you will, within 30 years. Historically speaking, Bloomwick says, that's a newsflash. 30 years when it comes to history is nothing. And what's fascinating about this passage in the book of Acts, the reason I had to read it today is because of the way in which documents, historical documents outside of Scripture say the same thing as Acts 2, and we know from those documents when they were written. For example, hang on with me. Put your thinking cap on and pull it down tight over your ears today and pull up your boots and here we go. There was a guy who was a Roman bureaucrat by the name of Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y. Pliny was a magistrate. He was a lawyer. He was an author. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't have a dog in the fight. His responsibility as a Roman bureaucrat was to write to Rome to the emperor and say, this is what's going on where I live. And he describes what was going on. And it so happens that what he describes is the same thing that we read in Acts 2. Acts 2 happens. Luke tells us that within a brief period of time, if that may be a year or two, as the church grew, 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 that the Roman and the Jewish authorities began to dislike the Christians to the point where Christians were now being martyred. And they scattered across the empire. And uh, Pliny ends up with a bunch of Christians that he's responsible for. And he writes to Rome saying, I have these instructions, hundreds of letters that he wrote that we have today. And he's writing to Emperor Trajan, 98 A.D. I've got all these Christians here. It's the habit that it's my responsibility to make them curse Christ under torture. But before I tell you all about that, can I tell you how they act? And he gives us how they act and see if this doesn't sound... Exactly like Acts chapter 2. They, the customs, the Christians, were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. The early church, he's saying, recognizes Jesus as God. We'll look at that next week. They bound themselves to a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds. It wasn't they were going to be ugly towards each other, but the reverse. To never commit any fraud, theft, adultery. Never to falsify their word, not to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. And when this was over, so they're getting together, they're singing, they're worshiping. Then when this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of a meal, but ordinary and innocent food. Do you know how it's put in Acts chapter 2? They got together, they do the apostles' teaching. Every day they meet together in the temple courts. Then, verse 46, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. What's fascinating about Pliny's letters is Pliny's letters, think about this, reiterate what we see in Scripture, and they confirm what we see in Scripture, and we know the date of the letters because of who he was writing to. Got to go backwards a little bit and think through the logic of it all. What we are saying is this, that we have confirmed from outside of Scripture that this is very early in the church's history, this is not hundreds of years later. This is as it's occurring. I'll explain it this way. I want you to listen to something right now and see if this comes to mind. Anything comes to mind? Run the track, guys. It's from *The Sound of Music*, right? *Sound of Music*, *Mary Poppins*. Anybody know what this is from? Star Wars. Now, why do you all know it's from Star Wars? You've heard it before and it's in your memory, right? And the reason you know it's not Mary Poppins because you've also heard Mary Poppins. You know What songs did she sing? Just a spoonful of sugar and so forth and so forth. Do you know when, when Star Wars came out? 1977, almost 40 years ago. 1977, that's the year Carter was voted in as president. It's the year Apple came out with their Apple II computer. It's the year that Elvis died and Star Wars came out. And some of you are going, man, it was like yesterday, and I remember it all very well. My point is, 40 years ago was not very long, and, well, <laughs> I've got something to show you. Wait till you see this. Some of you are going to go, this is too cool. <laughs> All right. Any idea what this is? A lightsaber. Why do you know it's a lightsaber? Because you saw the movie, right? Whoa. Oh. was that cool or what? Okay. Any idea who this belonged to? Fred, no, no, it's not Fred's. I love it. This is Obi Wan Kenobi because it's blue, right? All right. Oh, isn't that sharp? Okay, wait. There's more. Who is this one? Darth Vader, right? Isn't that classic? All right, I got one more. Who would this be? Yoda, it is. The little green guy he was. He used English in a very unusual way. He did. Remember? Remember? Guys, turn the lights out. We've got to see what this looks like. Isn't that clever? Okay. Okay, now you know what you can get people for Christmas. Exactly. Exactly. Some of you are really Star Wars experts, and you're Star Wars fans, and you would know, even though Star Wars came out starting 40 years ago, you would know if there was a mistake when somebody said, well, this was Obi-Wan Kenobi's, and you'd go, no, it's not. It's green. It's little. You know the story, right? And you would refute even though it was, just for, it was a long time ago, 40 years ago, if you will. But it's not very far away. Let me, let me see if I, for those of you who have known nothing about Star Wars, <laughs> let me see if I can show you one more way, okay, that I could perhaps bring this home. These are some books from my library in my office. They are all recent histories. This one right down here was written in 1993. It's about World War II. It's called, called a, World at, a World at Arms. This one here is written by a friend of mine who got a Pulitzer Prize for this just a couple years ago. It's about the Vietnam War. It's the now definitive work on Vietnam. This one's by Bob Woodward about the um, Watergate. Watergate. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crisis: The Last Life, the Last Year. Pardon me of the Carter Presidency. Hamilton Jordan. Remember that name. This is by Peggy Noonan. When Character Was King: The Story of Ronald Reagan. Now, here's what I want you to understand. If there were inaccuracies in these books, other historians would write and complain about it, right? Why is that? Although the war of World War II took place more than 70 years ago, it finished more than 70 years ago, there are enough eyewitnesses around now, excuse me, enough people who interviewed eyewitnesses, they would say, no, you don't have it quite right. And there would be, not complaints, but some chatter back and forth about this. Or if we didn't, if I'd said that that was not Yoda's thing, you would have said, no, I was there, I remember it. It's a long time ago, in terms of my life, 40 years ago, but I was there. You know what's fascinating about the New Testament, and when we say that it's completely accurate and that it was out within just a few decades of when the events took place? You know what's absolutely fascinating is we have absolutely no one from that period of time saying this is wrong. We have lots of documents from about all kinds of different things about Scripture and this, that, and the other. But we have no one saying, this is wrong. That's incredibly important. Friends, you can put to, doubt, put to rest, pardon me, any of your doubts, the New Testament is written very close to the events it describes. And we have great confidence that what it records is both accurate and trustworthy. Let me, with that in mind, then respond to a second challenge that people have about the Bible. And they would say this, the Bible has been corrupted over time because it was copied and it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. That's not true. That's not true at all. It hasn't been translated and retranslated and retranslated and retranslated. It's not the game of telephone that kids have. You know that game where a little kid in class whispers one message in the ear of somebody who then messages, whispers in, and they do whisper, 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 whisper all the way back around to the first person, and by the time it gets around, it's a completely different message. That is not how the Bible that you have in your hand was translated. No, it was translated. The English Bibles that we have today come as a direct translation from ancient manuscripts in the original languages. Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New Testament. And every good translation goes back to the earliest documents available. Like the NIV goes back further in terms of its historicity, if you will, and its reliability further than the King James Version, for example. It goes back because we found more documents that go back earlier since the King James was first put together. And thus, we can say that what we are reading and comprehending is exactly what the original authors wrote because we've got linguistic and language experts who can figure it all out. Now, I must immediately put all my cards on the table and say, you're correct. We do not have the original handwritten documents of the New Testament. Fair enough. They all either disintegrated years ago, we haven't yet found them. Number of years ago, we found a lot of documents that were very, very, that predate Jesus from the Old Testament. When it comes to the New Testament, we don't have that yet. But what makes the New Testament really stand out is that we have so, 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 so many copies of this ancient work, and they are much earlier than other ancient works in comparison. You go, what does that mean? Well, Daniel Wallace, who is a New Testament scholar, puts it this way, "...we have an embarrassment of riches compared to the data the classical Greek and Latin scholars have to contend with. The classical author's library mains number no more than 20 copies." In other words, they only have 20 copies of these ancient documents that people say, this is really important. Do you know how many of these we have for the New Testament? We have way more than 20. We have 5,800 that go back to those first first few decades. And so not only do we have a thousand times more of the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for the average Greco-Roman author, also the period of time between when an event occurred and when we have the oldest document is significantly different. Catch me in this. Roman Greco authors are writing, and for the most part, the average space between when they wrote and the oldest document that we have of a copy of that is on average 500 years. That's a long time. But for those of us, when we're looking at New Testament documents that go back, we are within just a few decades, we're within a Star Wars movie history. And if those historical documents outside of Scripture are considered reliable with 500 years difference and with only 20 copies, why is it then, logically, does it make sense to call into question 5,800 copies that are just within a few decades? The bottom line is that the modern translations of the Bible available to us are accurate and they are trustworthy renditions of the original biblical texts and we can trust them with great confidence. It makes sense to do that. And besides it making sense, can I tell you what I myself have discovered? Because I'm quite convinced that the Bible was not corrupted over time. And I, I, I had great debate as to whether or not I should say this today because I don't want it to come off the wrong way. But like you, and maybe perhaps more than you, I've got lots of years of studying this book from a devotional point of view. And beyond that, I have lots of years of digging into it every week to stand in this pulpit. But beyond that, I have countless numbers of hours in academic classrooms that sometimes I don't even dare to put the, put that figure together. And I, please hear me. This is not to brag. This is just to kind of... Back up what I'm saying here. I have a master's degree. It's called a master of divinity. Most master's degrees are 30, 35 hours of credit hours. A master of divinity is 87 hours long. You're in school forever. You want Jesus to come home by the time (laughs) you want him to come back. You are so ready for him to come back by the time you finish studying him. Trust me. I have that and I have a doctoral degree besides. And it's all focused on biblical studies. And I'm not saying that again to brag, but to, to point out My absolute conviction from my own life personally and from my own academic record, does that make sense, says this, you can trust the words that are on the pages here. I've discovered what others have also discovered, not just those with academic records like mine, if you will, but across cultural differences, across language differences, across the timeline of thousands of years, across theological differences, across personality differences of so the people writing versus the people reading, across the way in which our culture is different than their culture and we might misunderstand, we, do we misunderstand some things? Worldwide, across from decades upon decades, people have come to the place where they said, I trust this to be God's word and for it to have a life-changing and a life-impacting power within me. People have seen the Holy Spirit use these words to change their lives. These words have changed my life. If I didn't believe that, I'd throw in the towel and say, I'm done. Absolutely. This book is accurate. Do I have questions? You bet I got questions. You bet. You should, too. You have an intellect. You should use it. But here's the big idea. God brought this to us, and that is fixed within me, beyond the shadow of a doubt. Now, here's what, 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 where I'd like to bring a challenge to you today in this regard. If this is the Word of God, I believe it is. If, if I've been able to convince you today that it is the Word of God, then don't just say, okay, it's the Word of God. But then maybe it's time to do something with it. Maybe you should read it occasionally. Having it sit on the shelf and saying, well, we have a Bible in our house, or putting it on your nightstand doesn't count, if you will. Putting it under your pillow is not going to help you. If this really is God's Word on page with you can read what God would say to you, then what are you doing about that, guys? You know, um George Gallup Jr. once said this about us in our American culture in the Bible. He said, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large they don't read it. Let no one make that charge against the people of First Christian Church. If you don't know Scripture, I get that. I get you don't have thirty years of studying it like I do. Fair enough. But in, if that's the case, may I suggest don't start in version in uh, volume two of Luke's story, of Luke's history. Start in Luke chapter one, and read about the man who captured his attention, and the man who changed his life, namely. The person, the personality, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. This week. You could go home this afternoon. and this afternoon You could read all the way through Luke and go, wow. Or you can read it in chunks. Or you can read it in, in printed pages. There are all kinds of ways you can read it online. Try YouVersion.com. YouVersion.com will get you going. Read the book of Luke this week. And let God bring his word to you. It, oh, we live in such a great age when you can have it. You can listen to it as you're driving down the, in, down the road. New version. You can play it on your iPhone and it'll come across your car speakers. Perfect. Perfect. This morning, go home and pay attention to a little bit of what God would say to you through this. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for my friends in this room. Lord, for their willingness to listen to me go on and on. and <laughs> I get it, God. There are times when maybe uh, the emphatic stresses that I bring, God, of understanding Scripture are not shared by all. I get that. But, God, I do pray that people in this room today would have a sense that, God, wants you want to work in their lives. You want to work in all of our lives. You want to work in my life, God. And I understand that one of the ways that that starts is through Scripture. Lord, I ask you give people here today, give all of us a desire to know what you would say to us. Across this room, God, in Jesus' name.